Yo, 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 what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Earn Your Good Day podcast, where we have a fundamental belief that people are stronger, more resilient, and far more capable of things than they believe in or have ever been told are possible. I'm your host, the man, the myth, the legend, the one and only Zach Kanadi. Now, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this show. It really means a lot for all of you guys that listen every single week, all of you guys that catch up, and all of you guys that are earning your good day and spreading the message. It is huge, and I just want to say thank you guys for doing that, for supporting the community, for building it. It means a lot to me, and I know you guys are getting a lot out of it as well, frankly, because you guys tell me. Now... Today we are going to be wrapping up Kanadi's Cliff Notes for the book, The Molecule of More. However, before we get into that, I do have two questions I need to ask you guys. Two requests, really. The first one is that if you found any value out of this show, if it is useful, thought-provoking, makes you think of something differently, gives you a new idea, I ask that you use this information today as soon as you hear it as soon as you turn this podcast off i ask that you use it right away and number two if you think you know somebody who would benefit from this situation i ask that you send the podcast to them have a conversation send it over you know instagram share with them on spotify but send it out if you think somebody else would benefit from this guys like i said a lot of the Big point of this convert of this podcast is to grow a community of people who want to earn their good day, right? People who want to get more out of life, who want to have a more fulfilled, a happier, a more successful life in whatever manner that they see fit, right? And now I try and tell a lot of people about this. I need you guys to help me out, okay? You guys are people who earn a good day, and people who do that, the strongest among us. We want other people to earn good days as well, right? Not only because we love them and we want the best for them, but also because we kind of want to compete with them, right? Let's be honest here. If you like earning a good day, you like achieving a lot in life, you're most likely a competitive person. And competitive people need adversaries, right? We need people that we're having friendly competition with to push us, to grow us, to force us to change and adapt. So guys, I need you guys to spread the message. I need you guys to grow the show. So if you think somebody would find it useful, send it their way for me, all right? That's all I got to ask for you. Now, let's get into this, guys. It is going to be such a good episode. We are finishing up the book, The Molecule of More by Daniel Z. Lieberman and Michael E. Long. Uh, These guys are two great authors, and honestly... This book going through it has been incredible. It has been honestly a time of a lot of self-reflection, especially on the second half. Um, and it's been a time of, I think it's gonna, this is going to be a book that I read regularly, likely for the rest of my life, just because it covers so many different facets of life. And it's so interesting how monopolistic I guess is a word that dopamine is in terms of all the different areas of life that it impacts, but also going through, especially on this half, 
how much we also need the here and now, the H and N molecules to balance out dopamine and really find that that harmony in life where we can achieve that drive and desire to get more and more and more, but also have that satisfaction of the here and now and all that we've accomplished, right? And to actually find a little bit of happiness. So last time we covered, right, we covered love, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And we also covered domination, all right? So basically, love, the big thing was it's desired dopamine. And it introduced us to the desired dopamine and dopamine in general and the H&N molecules, which is the here and now, the present, right? So dopamine, we know, is all future focus, forward focus, our extra personal space. And the H&Ns are in the present moment or our peripersonal space. And love, we learned about how desired dopamine leads us uh, into the honeymoon stage where we're passionate and we're lustful for the other person and we want more of them, more time, more of everything. And oftentimes we struggle to get from the passionate love to the compassionate love, which is where we just get most of our joy from being around that other person, having them involved in our life and spending time with them right it becomes much more about the the present versus the chase and in drugs we learned about the difference between desired dopamine and controlled dopamine and oftentimes addiction is really just the route of desired dopamine has been hijacked by uh, desires and chemicals and drugs to an unnatural level that's made it almost impossible for most people without some sort of help to exert their control circuits of dopamine to kind of reel in that desired dopamine. And we talked about using uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically changing your routine or changing how you behave in order to change your thoughts, life, and action. We also talked about motivational enhancement therapy, which is focusing on the good, right? Those pro-change statements and emphasizing those, going down those and kind of skirt uh, and minimizing those anti-change statements, as well as we talked about why AA and NA are the most successful self-help programs, because not only are they focusing on individual change through you wanting to change, but also because you have a community of people who want you to change and who support you in change, right? And that the the added shame of letting down the people who care about us makes it also change with the caveat that when we let those people down, they don't kick us while we're down, but in fact, they extend a hand and they help us up. And then we learned about domination, which really goes into that control circuit and tenacity and utilizing dopamine to actually plan out and articulate and strategize how we can get what we want more of in the future, right? Whether that be a beautiful partner, whether that be a career, whether that be a new car, whether that be a new house, right? Whether that be this, whether that be that, controlled dopamine and our self-efficacy, which is our belief in our ability to accomplish or do a certain task, is going to be the things that really dictate what we do, how long we're able to stay in the fat in the fight, and if we're actually able to get what we want more of. 
right? So that was kind of the last episode, the first half of the molecule of more. Mm. Now, in today's episode, we are going to be talking about creativity and madness and the link of dopamine there. We'll also be talking about politics and how dopamine actually plays a role in what political alignment that you might have or your family or friends might have. And those will be the main two, but then we'll spend the latter part of the episode talking about progress and why dopamine is actually the reason we make progress, kind of tying a nice bow up on that because we've been spending the whole time on it, right? And then finally, we're going to wrap up in basically not getting lost in the sauce of dopamine, right? Dopamine always promises more, 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 and that satisfaction is just around the corner or just down the road a little bit further, but it never quite comes through on that promise, whereas that's where the here and now, the H and N molecules come through and they provide, they supply that satisfaction, that quote-unquote happiness that I think almost all of us are in pursuit of. And then we'll talk a little bit about how to actually maximize dopamine. Uh, this is going to be kind of some of the things that I've taken away from this book. And then I'll give you guys a recipe for the day as usual. And that's going to be that, guys. So I'm really excited about this. And it has been a crazy journey researching, putting together these last couple weeks of episodes. And I'm very thankful for you guys to have sticking around the road. But Let's get into it, right? I know you guys want some more of this. <laughs> All right, creativity and madness. Now, these are basically two opposite ends of the spectrum. We have creativity, which is the priceless, untapped potential and the most precious gift that the human brain has to offer. It is the brain at its absolute best. Right, this is where we get the Steve Jobs, the wheel, right, the sliced bread, right? There's the old saying, it's the best thing since sliced bread. Well, creativity created sliced bread, everybody. And on the opposite end, we have madness, right, which is essentially the brain at its worst. Oftentimes, now, while madness is not a psychiatric diagnosis, Basically, it means your mind's kind of fucked up, right? Your brain done messed up. You're not right. Something, you got a couple circuits missing or a couple crisscross wires up in there. And, you know, you probably need some help. And that's okay, right? But I think oftentimes when we think of madness, we don't necessarily think of a specific mm, illness. But oftentimes it might be correlated with like schizophrenia is a pretty common one. I think more so because of the severity of its symptoms and the description of those symptoms. So kind of what we're going to be talking about is basically um, the connection between creativity and madness and how oftentimes they're two edges of the same blade, right? While creativity is awesome and we love it, oftentimes people who are highly creative are at an increased risk for psychiatric illness and going mad and having mental health issues. And while people who are mad oftentimes might also be a genius in an area, whether they're an artistic genius or they're a you know academic genius, and how those geniuses also tend to be 
just as creative or more likely to be creative than your average Joe. So it's kind of like the mad scientist, the mad genius, the mad artist. Um, I think it's it's kind of it's kind of like a really cool cool thing, right? And so generally, if we look at madness, though, oftentimes we got um, we have a lot of dopamine is going in this and actually schizophrenia is a disease that's core uh kind of defined by an excessive amount of dopamine to basically like an unnatural level this isn't normal it's not healthy and in fact how we treat it it was is we block dopamine so i want to read you guys a little excerpt from the book if you give me a second here and this is basically about a and at this point, it's talking about how Nobel Prize winners or really uh, smart people tend to be more dopaminergic and also are just as likely to, while they're creative geniuses, they're more like a mad scientist oftentimes. And so this guy, uh, John Nash, is a Nobel Prize winning mathematician who lived with schizophrenia. And this is an excerpt from a book by Sylvia Nassar, who wrote about Nash in her book, the Be- a beautiful mind, right? And this is basically um, this little excerpt is a recounting of an exchange between Nash and a Harvard professor George Mackey, right? And so Mackey begins, "How could you? How could you, a mathematician, a man devoted to reason and logical proof, how could you believe that extraterrestrials are sending you messages?" How could you believe that you were being recruited by aliens from outer space to save the world? How could you? And Nash looks up at last and fixed uh, Mackie with an unblinking stare, as cool and dispassionate as any bird or snake. Because, Nash said slowly in his reasonable southern draw, as if talking to himself, The ideas I had about supernatural beings came to me the same way that my mathematical ideas did. And basically what what we're getting at is he, to be genius, right, typically requires a much higher level of dopamine, a higher level of drive and um, desire to get something. But it's also the same link that goes with schizophrenia and a lot of other psychiatric illnesses. Um, also with anxiety and depression and bipolar, especially manic bipolar. Um, these are all characterized by high levels of dopamine, excessive levels of dopamine that have become problematic. And oftentimes what these people are treated with is a class of drugs called antipsychotics. And now, prior to reading this book, I'd heard about these drugs and, you know, with several people, I actually worked with a gentleman um, who was our dishwasher at Ponchero's, who who's a really interesting character, um, and he was prescribed antipsychotics. And I know a couple other people who are prescribed antipsychotics. And basically, I was like, okay, well, these are anti-crazy meds, right? Like, these are anti-madness meds. But... What do they do? You know, like I know depression meds are usually like SSRIs or benzodiazepines and basically they're meds that help your mind function better like SSRIs, 
make you well they basically make you more present with the here and now molecules we know uh they're supposed to make you happier because serotonin is correlated with more feelings of satisfaction and you know happiness and less of depression and sadness um but i was like so what do like what do these antipsychotic meds do and basically they damper down our dopamine specifically our uh, desired dopamine and the goal with these is we want to shut down some of the desired dopamine without turning off our control dopamine all right and this is important because it leads us into the idea of salience and now salience is this concept basically of importance and you can think of it not necessarily as like what's important because that might differ to different people but more so what are you prioritizing in your life and normally this would be things that make sense right things that keep us alive so work uh family sex food shelter uh, a car right way to transport us protection all these things that are going to essentially make us live better right have an easier time in life and really what this means is the things that trigger dopamine because you guys remember from the last one in the addiction section what is dopamine most triggered from in a natural environment if you remember it's things that are going to keep us alive so sex food shelter and protection right those four things are going to be the things that keep us alive the longest and so naturally they're going to release the most dopamine and naturally they're going to have the most salience or importance or priority in our life now the cool thing is with most healthy people we can actually kind of choose specifically what we put salience on however with somebody who is mentally ill or specifically like schizophrenic they're salience measure right their dopamine is kind of miscalculated meaning it fires at incorrect times or times that aren't really relevant to actually keeping us alive now one of the examples that it brings up is imagine you're watching the news and on the news is there's this balloon that's flying over the country and it's actually flying over your county and they're saying that this balloon is a spy balloon from a foreign country you know and now normally you might think that this is oh just a random balloon uh or you know it's they're trying to spy on the country as a whole they're gonna attack but somebody who's schizophrenic or who suffers from mental illness and their salience is miscalculated might start to think that that news anchor isn't just talking about that they're the country is being spied upon that country that foreign country is spying on them specifically so there was actually was such a balloon that flew over the u.s not too long ago and it was deemed a spy balloon from china and so if you were living with schizophrenia uh what might actually happen is that you might think that that balloon is sent directly and specifically to spy on you right and you alone not the u.s as a whole right but you in particular and you might have a delusion uh or that 
you are now the subject of a conspiracy theory that the FBI or the CIA or the Chinese government is out to get you and they're going to implant you with some chip and they're going to follow you and now you must be paranoid and you can't trust anybody about it because who knows, they might be a secret. My goodness, excuse me, folks, I apologize. Uh, they might be a secret agent for the Chinese government and they're going to turn you in and boom, you're going to get in trouble. Well, this isn't actually true in about 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
uh, family, shelter, protection, all these things. And what's crazy is old uh, antipsychotics actually were like really, really strong binders to our dopamine receptors. And so nothing was going to get through there. It was like trying to punch your way through a eight foot concrete wall, right? Like no matter what you're going to do, you're not getting through that thing. However, modern day antipsychotic meds actually do a much better job. And what's strange is because they don't bind to the receptor as firmly, you know, so maybe instead of an eight foot concrete wall, it's only, you know, like those karate videos where they're punching through a single brick. You know, it's, if you don't do it quite right or it's not enough force, you're not going to break through, but you still got a pretty good chance to break through. And this is important because if we were to block all dopamine, well, then we'd have no drive to do anything and the world would be a pretty fucking boring place, you know? So we want to give these people as much normalcy as we can. And so that's actually a pretty cool thing that antipsychotics have come a long way in that realm, where before it wasn't so much. But let's kind of talk, take a, a quick turn here, and let's talk about models, creativity, and time travel. And no, I'm not crazy, although, well, maybe a little bit, but yes, we are going to talk about time travel. So models, uh, and this is not like the magazine models, right? Really, it's the beautiful people. Uh, this is actually, we're talking about models of the universe and the world. And basically how I want to describe it to you guys and define it is descriptions of the things or environments that uh, only compromise, or I can't English today, only contain the essential details. And generally, they're based mainly on experience or knowledge. So another way to think about this is categories for everything in the world. So if you see a old beat-up uh, beater car or you see a supercar Lamborghini, you both know that they're for driving, right? If you see a spaceship, you know it's for going to space. If you see a plane versus a, you know, like the ones where they do crop dusting. You both know they're for flying. You don't have to go in every time you see a new car trying to figure out what it's used for, right? So you use a model for that. Creativity, then, we're going to define as breaking pre-existing models and reforming them in new and undone, like in new and unseen ways, right? So that essentially we're creating something new, right? Creativity. Wow. wow. Crazy definition there. Now, time travel, unfortunately, we have not actually figured out how to actually time travel yet. Um, but we're talking about mental time traveling. And that essentially is defined as mentally applying models to future events or situations that have not happened yet. In simpler terms, it's predicting the future. And Really, this mental time travel and using models and creativity is the three ingredients that allow us to plan out every single quote-unquote next step in our lives. But what happens if our models suck, right? Can we fix them? Uh, and but I think before we have to ask that is we have to ask why do our models suck? And the book gives us three answers for that. One is we don't have enough or we have poor information or experiences. 
We have difficulty with abstract thinking, and we have a persistence of wrong assumptions. I think this one would be really critical and applicable to limiting beliefs. So one way, one example of that would be if you were bullied as a child, you had really critical parents, you might grow up believing you're a weak, bad person or inherently broken in a certain sense and taken to the extremes. Oftentimes, this can lead people down the path to anxiety or depression. Now, most of the time, uh, we most people generally tend to keep useful models and get rid of or stop using unuseful models. However, and then as we go through life and we get more and more experience, we add that experience and we adjust our models, right? We adjust our past models given the new information and we make them better. This allows us to progress and we have a better view of the future, right? And this is basically what school is all about. It's why we have to go in a sequential order and we build on the past, right? So you can't learn calculus without having first learned addition and subtraction, you know? And we can't learn addition and subtraction without having first learned how to count. And so we kind of get to go through this and our experiences add and sometimes our experiences will radically shift our models. You know, if you were uh, had like your first serious relationship and then you trusted them with all your heart and then boom they lied to you about something really really big going forward you might be really distrusting of people you know and maybe that at some point has its benefits it also might have its flaws but we have to um go in and basically we have to rely on our models and this is really good especially if we have really good models uh but it does have a downfall and that is what we get when we have really good models it can actually keep us lock right in lockstep and it can limit our creativity and can limit our ability to see a way to fix a problem or to adjust and what's actually really cool is we have these like kind of tricks that help us become more creative and help us break our models beforehand and oftentimes we see them in the form of riddles right and riddles are basically like you have to find new meaning or abstract meaning from a set of words now one i want to give you guys and i'll tell you the meaning at the end of this chapter is the riddle that goes um ah where is it here where is it here Oh, I am in weeks, but not days, and I am in years, but not months. What am I? All right, so I want you guys to hold on on that, and I want you to think. So we're going to go through the rest of this uh, chapter, and we're actually going to go into it. Now, what's cool, before I move on real quick, is that with this talk about building and breaking models, right? So planning and creativity, all of these are still required and dependent on dopamine right because dopamine simply is future oriented and models are how we are going to plan and orient into the future and creativity is creating something out of nothing right so it's taking something that we have this idea for this future sense and bringing it into fruition so both of those things are um, seen and required and used by dopamine What's also really cool is so are dreams, 
you know, and uh, dreams are actually kind of like this halfway point or like this splitting ground between, you know, creativity and madness. And I think I always sometimes wake up from like a really strange dream and I go to like describe it to somebody and it's the most bizarre experience I've ever had in my life. Like I'm usually in like a halfway familiar place with halfway familiar people, but usually like the most random assortment of people, uh, like people I haven't had conversations or relationships with in a long time are there, or that people that are in very separate parts of my life are together and acting like they're together. And we're usually going on some wild adventure, some crazy things happen in places that look familiar, but are also radically different than what they seem in the real world but i also know that you know they're that familiar place so dreams are just like kind of this crazy mix mash of creativity and chaos you know what's cool is there's actually a lot of people who they wake up and they have a great new recipe or a new song or a movie or a podcast or a play or like they have this idea on how to fix their problem and it all came from a dream um actually like i have a a personal example with this um that my uncle my great uncle he owns a restaurant called bones barbecue up in north dakota my not north dakota so if you anybody's ever up there go to bones barbecue my old man and my aunt run it now uh but they have freaking phenomenal barbecue sauce right they have like three of them you can buy it in the bottle you can buy it by the case and every single one, their original, their mustard barbecue sauce, and their spicy barbecue sauce are freaking spectacular, okay? They're all great. And all three recipes actually came to my great uncle in a dream. He woke up from a dream, had the recipe, and he has this crazy kitchen in his basement. Uh, and he went and he created them. And from those dreams these incredible sauces they're actually award-winning sauces in north dakota were created it was all from a dream and these experimenters in the book actually uh did an experiment said well if creativity is kind of like a dream can we figure out where like what's going on in the in the dream state in the brain and then can we try and trigger more of that so they first, what they did is they took a bunch of people and they took some healthy people uh, and they asked them to solve problems during a brain scan and they took schizophrenic people and they did the same thing. And what they found was that when people were solving a problem, uh, their right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex lit up. And basically that's a really fancy word for, uh, I want you to think of on the right side, and ventral means face side so like the side of your face lateral so the face side on the right side the ventral lateral so the forward and slightly off to the side prefrontal cortex so probably like right above your eye recessed about the same depth as your eye in your brain uh, that area of the brain specifically that area the prefrontal prefrontal cortex lit up when people are using creativity Right, specifically when they were creatively solving a problem. And then what they found was that when people are normal, 
this area wasn't lit up very much, but when they were solving a problem, it was lit up crazy. And then they did the brain scans of people with schizophrenia, and this same area was lit up all the time, whether they were trying to solve a problem or they were just waking, right? They are just like chilling out there. And they also did this like area with dreams, right? While people were dreaming and while people were in their dream state, this area also lit up. And so they kind of like made, came to this conclusion that schizophrenia is basically like living life constantly in a dream. And this, this actually really made me ponder here because then I was like, okay, well, I know how bizarre my dreams are, but imagine being awake and that's just the world, right? Imagine being awake and it's like you're constantly dreaming. You know, you don't know, quite know what's real. You, things just seem like out of place, but also familiar. And like you're making all these weird connections that normally you wouldn't make. And maybe like they're normal connections, like are there connections that work? And maybe they're like totally out of this world and there's no no way that they would actually ever be together. You know, like they would ever actually connect. And I don't know, it just really made me, made me ponder that, like what it would actually be like living with schizophrenia. But then the authors ask this really cool question. It's like, okay, so since we know dreams uh, light up this area with creativity, can we use our dreams to solve problems? Right, because we know creativity is like this great, great wealth and the brain's at its best. So they actually did an experiment on this and they had over a 70% success rate where like the dreams basically, um, they basically like came up and they were able to solve problems with them. So what they did was they took a bunch of participants and they had the participants, uh, basically they recorded the dreams. Now, before they went to bed, they had them picture their problem. You know, so if you were an artist and you're lacking inspiration, you would picture a blank page. If you were having relationship issues, you would picture that person. If you were struggling to do something with school, you know, or moving, maybe you would picture a map. And what they also found was that the more pressing the problem was, the more likely that you were A, likely to have a dream about it, and then B, that the dream was likely to give you a novel answer to use against that. And then, so they had these people like write, wake up, and as soon as they wake, woke up, they had to write down their dreams. And they did this for uh, basically until they thought that they had found a new solution to their dreams. And they had, like, like I said, over a 70% success rate, and they had a panel of judges that would that knew the problem and then they had the description of the dream and they judged whether or not it was a like suitable i guess solution or new way of looking at the dream and they agreed that at 70 percent of the time the dream provided a new way now that had no uh liability or like no rationality on whether or not the dream solution was the best solution. However, it was a novel and a new solution to the problem. So basically the dream allowed these participants to shift their perspective on the problem and it gave them a new way to look through it. 
And so that was what they did, which was actually pretty cool. And then it kind of moves into um, these mad scientists who like to paint. And it talks about uh, Einstein and all these other crazy people who, why they like to paint and also why like these really smart people also kind of tend to be assholes, unfortunately. Um, like they're these magnificent gifts to society and they all inspire us. But then we look at them and it's like, wow, you're actually a giant jackass. Uh, like people said that a lot about Steve Jobs, Michael Jordan, Kobe. Like they're so in pursuit of their goal. They're so dopaminergic that they're not generally very seen as very kind. They're seen as kind of brash or harsh, um, which is kind of interesting. And basically it means like these people who have crazy uh, dopamine tend to also have really low HN molecules because they're kind of like dimmer switches with each other. And it talks about Einstein. And once he said, My passionate sense for social justice and social responsibility has always been contrasted oddly with my pronounced lack of need for direct contact with other human beings. He also said, I love humanity and hate humans, right? <laughs> Which is kind of wild, but this guy who is incredibly creative in uh, like science and physics and math is, and also has this profound sense of social justice and responsibility, right? Society as a whole, but he hates individual humans and I don't know. It's kind, of, it's kind of like this crazy oxymoron. And we're actually going to get into that a little bit in the next part when we start talking about politics. Um, but this kind of goes in as to like these people who are creative geniuses. You know, they have incredible artistic gifts, mathematical gifts or intellectual gifts. And they're crazy driven by it. Also tend to be really, really poor at social connections. And I learned this uh, about Einstein. But so he was married. And he got divorced. And two years prior to his first divorce, he began an affair with his cousin. So I guess I didn't know this, but maybe he was born in Bama. Um, he ended up marrying his cousin and then cheated on her with his secretary and likely half a dozen other mistresses and girlfriends. So while Einstein had a crazy gift uh it with his dopamine, it also gave him a curse, right? Because as we learned in the chapter about love, he was not able to transition from this passionate love to the here and now and the compassionate love. And so that constantly kept him chasing, which at the same state is also probably why he was so great of a mathematician, physicist, and scientist as a whole. Uh, so far, we've actually kind of learned, though, that we generally have three create three main dopaminergic personalities. Uh, the first one that we learned about was the impulsive pleasure seeker, right? So that was in love and drugs. The chapters are there. Then we talked about the detached planner. So that was in domination, the person who would much rather spend uh, 16 hours at the office day in and day out rather than go out for a drink with friends. And this last one we learned about is the creative genius, right? And the mad scientist. 
and that's somebody who while all three of these are you know seem very different on the surface right like the the hedonist the cold ceo and the kind of like whimsical artist and genius well they all seem so different on the surface and at face value they actually all have a really common root and cause to that person and that is that they're all crazy dopaminergic right they all are trying to maximize the future resources and create a better future than we have present and like i wanted to pose you guys a question but can you think of anybody in your life that would fit one of these three personality types and given what we've spent all of this episode so far and all of last episode talking about with dopamine do you have like a better understanding of who they are as a person and maybe why they are the way they are you know why are they willing to sacrifice so much in the here and now for you know making the future better uh and i don't know i just want to pose that those questions to you guys kind of yeah something to talk about but it was you know and then um you know dopamine also while it allows us to create this this beautiful future and new world uh that's you know frankly could be a hundred times better than what we have now it also gives us a a cost you know it comes at a cost of risk of addiction mental illness uh social difficulty and so i wanted to ask you guys another question to kind of end this section of it um are you the happiest when you're creating a better future yet struggling to enjoy the fruits of your labor or are you happiest just enjoying the here and now i think i want to ask you guys that because it's it talks about you know maybe it give you some insight on whether or not you're a dopaminergic person or a here and now focused person but let's kind of transition let's stop talking about creativity and mental illness and let's talk about a very exciting and very frankly hot topic of politics and this one i want to preface this that i really ask that you guys just keep an open mind and more so take it as a lens of understanding rather than an objective good or bad of anything okay this is strictly meant to provide information it is not meant to provide greater division between uh, political parties or people. It is simply information to provide us with a greater understanding of people and in fact, actually able, hopefully, to allow us to be more empathetic and understanding of those who are different than us, especially in the political arena, because I think that one more than almost any other arena is strife with differences discontent and all types of hatred from both sides all sides now the the chapter starts out with the big mix-up right which is sounds great and you're like oh well it's politics so they must be one of a trillion things that they've done wrong <laughs> but really it's talking about a a research study that was looking at if personality traits were connected or related at all to political affiliation and 
they came up with the answer of yes. And in fact, it got so deep as it could even be related to gene expression. Yes, our epigenetics and genetics may play a role in whether you are more liberal or conservative or libertarian or um, Tea Party or Green Party, right? Whatever you are, it could have some indication and some roots are able to be traced back to your genes. Uh, and the study originally came out in April of 2002, and this was when researchers basically uh, published their first findings based on personality uh, constellations, which isn't an, any individual trait, but it's actually like a group of traits or a group of similar traits. And they were split it up in between what they called P-scores, which was high P-scores, were uh, manipulative, tough-minded, and practical, were kind of like the personality traits. And then the other one of low P-score, which was that personality const constellation, is kind of what they said, was their P-score. So the higher the P-score, the more manipulative, tough-minded, and practical they were. The lower the P-score, the more altruistic, well-socialized, and empathetic they were. Now, the researchers of this paper uh, provide the hypothesis that liberals would average a lower P-score and conservatives would average a high P-score. So basically, liberals are more altruistic, well-socialized, and empathetic, and conservatives are manipulative, tough-minded, and practical. So you're kind of painting this picture of opposite ends of the spectrum, not only in terms of P-score, but also in terms of characteristics and how that would play out in reality. Mm. So what they found was actually the hypothesis was perfect and freaking matched perfectly. Obviously, like conservatives have a super high P-score, so they're really tough-minded, manipulative, and very practical, and liberals are very altruistic, well-socialized, and empathetic, and this was actually what they went by for 14 years uh, until 2016 rolled around, and they actually had to redact and retract the study and post a revision of it, and what they found was the actual results were the exact opposite. And they realized that somebody during the research in the original research study had uh, flipped the labels and misinterpreted the labels of high and low P-score. So I do want to preface, we don't actually know the original of this, but it'll make a little bit more sense here in from based on what we know about dopamine and the here and now molecules. So the new revised study actually said that conservatives were altruistic, well-socialized, and empathetic, which is opposite of the current narrative of conservatives, and that liberals are manipulative, tough-minded, uh, sensation-seeking, and practical, which is also opposite of the current narrative of it. Now... If we look at what we know about neuroscience and everything we've talked about related it and relate it to dopamine, does this new redone study make sense, right? Does it make sense that liberals are more uh, 
manipulative, tough-minded, and practical. And if they're also very, you know, forward-thinking, right? Because liberals call themselves progressives. Um, and are conservatives much more altruistic, well-socialized, and empathetic. Now, let's talk about this before we even dive into it. Uh, we are talking about personality research and understanding. There's a couple asterisks we need to make. First of all, people are infinitely complex and evolving, right? You are not the same person as you are when you're 10 years old as you are when you're 50. Uh, two, just a single trait is a only a sliver of a person, even a trait constellation as what we're talking about here is only a piece or two of the pie. It is not everything about the person. And honestly, and number three, the most important one is that these scores are shown as averages, okay? So they are really only applicable when we're talking about large groups. So if you know an individual and they fall into one of these two camps, but they don't fit the dopaminergic or the general personality constellations, that's because they're an individual, right? So they might be an outlier, but on average, what we find is that uh, politically, liberals do tend to be more manipulative, uh, practical, and tough-minded, and conservatives tend to be, right, uh, much more altruistic, well-socialized, and empathetic. Now, let's talk about this, right? So what does it mean if we have a manipulative, uh, practical, and tough-minded person? Well, all of these traits that are associated with a high P-score, uh, you know, the impulsivity, authoritarianism, uh, sensation-seeking, manipulative, all of these things practical, these are all also associated with elevated levels of dopamine, right? And this makes sense. Because dopamine, impulsivity, oh, desire dopamine, authoritarianism, control dopamine, sensation seeking, ah, desire dopamine, um, practicality, control dopamine, right? Manipulative, control and desire dopamine. So all of these things tend to be related with dopamine. And it also so happens that people who tend to be more liberal call themselves progressive, which means constant improvement. Well, what does dopamine want? Constant improvement. It wants more and more and more. Now, conservative tends to be associated more so with maintenance of what was inherited. I like to think of environmental conservatism, right? We're trying to actually stop the environment from changing. We're trying to maintain and take care of the environment that has been inherited and to have it not change, to have it not progress. And... These are also associated with traits like empathy, well-socialization, uh, and altruism, which is associated with lower levels of dopamine, right? And actually actually associated with higher levels of the H&N molecules. Well, what do those do, right? They allow us to be very present in the current thing. And this makes a lot of sense, right? Because what do liberals want? They're always dissatisfied with the status quo and are always trying to push for a bigger, better, brighter future versus conservatives really don't want to change a whole lot because, and oftentimes an argument is, well, a utopia is basically impossible. So why try? Why not just try and make the best of what we have? 
very present-minded, right? Very present moment-seeking. Now, what's interesting is we talked about genetics playing a role in here. So how much of a role do genetics play? Well, they looked at a, uh, a gene, and it's a dopamine receptor gene, and this is basically called the D4, as in dog quattro gene, and they looked at the different variants of it, also called alleles. And there's one variant, one allele, called the 7R allele of the D4 gene. And this was associated with people who had more liberal ideologies. Only, though, if they were raised among people with a variety of political ideologies. So what we see here is that we need not only the genetic input, but we also need the societal input for there to be a connection. People who are raised uh, with the R7 gene or the 7R gene, but no societal variance in the political beliefs, there was not much of an association with it. So only people with both the 7R variant and social variants are going to have this genetic association with liberalism which is really quite easy, interesting because um, you would think, I think everybody talks about how genes are like this end-all, be-all thing, but right here we're saying that they're only a part of the puzzle. And this is also seen across cultures. They did the same study in China and found the exact same results. Now, one thing that they did talk about was which political group was more generous. Right. So in 2012, uh, a statistic it gave was the top 16 states based off of tax reports uh, who gave the highest percentage of their income voted Republican. So they voted for Mitt Romney. And while all the states and the cities who had the lowest votes or the lowest uh, percentage of their income given to charity voted for Obama. Now, and this also was coherent across all tax brackets, whether you were poor, middle class, rich, or ultra rich. If you voted, if you gave more, you were more likely to have voted Republican. If you gave less, you were more likely to have voted Democrat. Now, does that really mean that liberals and Democrats don't care about poor people? Uh, or is it more so a stance that they might be more concerned with humanity rather than humans? And this is, I think, important to give up, bring up because the current narrative of the right, the Democratic and the Liberal Party is that they're the party of tolerance, they're the one of inclusion, and they're the one of acceptance. So you think that it's just based off of that fact that they would give them, give poor people or give charities the most money. But we actually find that that is not true. In fact, they actually give the least. However. Also in 2012, if we looked at um, state, federal, and local government spending on anti-poverty programs, one trillion, with a T, trillion dollars was spent on those programs. Well, in the same year, it was only 360 billion, with a T, was given to charities. So what was spent on anti-poverty programs almost was three times the amount given as charitable in charitable givings and donations. 
So then the question is, uh, does each dollar have the same impact? Right? Does each dollar given from the from the government, federal, state, and local government to anti-poverty programs, does it have the same impact as dollars given in charitable giving, right? In charitable donations. And I think we have to look at this as frankly, it's probably a different amount of impact for different people in different situations. The benefit of the government giving is that if we were to break that down into each person in the country, that would average $20,000 given to every single person in the United States for $1 trillion. $20K for every single person who lives in the U.S. based off of the 2012 uh, federal anti-poverty programs versus, you know, like $6,000 based off of charitable giving, if we were to do the math. So you can get a lot more money via you know the liberal way, which is the dopaminergic way, and frankly that makes sense, you know, because dopamine always wants more, so it's going to maximize resources, it's going to maximize its goal. So it makes sense that the federal government was giving more. However, federal money does not give you the ability to be individualized and specific and to cater to an individual's needs. Versus charitable giving is able to do that, right? It also generally tends to have a higher degree of uh, self-responsibility and making good choices. And, but it's also a lot more relationally based. People who tend to give to charities might usually volunteer there or they're able to more likely to see the people that that charity is helping. So if you give to the Salvation Army, and you volunteer there, you can actually see the people that come in and get the food or the clothes that you've uh, donated or volunteered to pack or to package and give to them. And you can begin to form a relationship with that person. You know, you can help them out in a different way. I think that's because we all kind of know at some deep level, giving is more than just a dollar, right? Sometimes a dollar isn't actually going to help somebody as much as a as a, a positive talk right a pep talk and being a shoulder for somebody to cry on or a resource or somebody that they can just talk to and vent about their problems and so i think i think it's important to understand that we need both right we need not only do we need the vast amount of money given by federal anti-poverty programs but we also need the interpersonal and the very close relationships that are being built by charitable giving and you would ask me like well obviously like we need both that makes a lot of sense right because sometimes poor people just need a real person but also they need a lot of help financially and you know as great as ten dollars is for them to buy a meal it's not necessarily going to do a whole lot of good financially for them so why can't we just do more of both well as we know, in the political arena, uh, this is the same as it is in the neurochemical arena. Generally speaking, dopamine and the HNN molecules oppose each other. So as the HNN molecules rise up, dopamine tends to crash. As dopamine tends to rise up, HNN molecules tend to crash. Just as the as the right brings an idea to the table, the left has to tear it down. Just as the left brings an idea to the table, the right has to tear it down. 
So we are constantly fighting this battle just as we are uh, with political parties and our brain. And, you know, it's so it's going to take us both just kind of, I'm not really sure how to fix that. Uh, I think we need to get a lot of help in a lot of ways for that. But I think we can just know that it's no matter how we decide to do this, uh, both conservatives and liberals think differently and their brain is quite literally wired and firing differently. So we're not going to see the world in the same sense. Now, what is cool though, I, yes, me, I can make you more conservative without you knowing, right? You're like, exactly, that's bullshit. I'm as liberal as they come. I got blue hair. I have a, the rainbow ally flag. I voted for Biden and Obama, and I always vote left all the way, and communism is the best, and blah, 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 like the most far left things that you can be. It's like, well, okay, I might not turn into a conservative, but I can make you more conservative and less liberal. Now, I am going to be a terrible magician, and I'm going to reveal to you my tricks for this. So how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to threaten you, or I'm going to cause you to have a fear of loss. And the reason is, is because the difference between the here and now molecules and dopamine is here and now is more afraid of fear of loss, and we actually have the... Pain of losing is greater than the pleasure of gaining. Now, dopamine prescribes equal value to gain as it does loss. It is plus one for gain and minus one for loss. And that's because simply we don't have it, right? Uh, if we gain something, we're gaining something in the future. So cool, that's plus one. It's future oriented. Uh, and then if you look at the H&M molecules, they're all present moment focused, so they don't care. So they don't really give us an additive value for gaining in the future. There's kind of a neutral party, they're like Sweden. Uh, but then losing, right? So dopamine is like, dang, that kind of sucks. I wanted more of this in the future, but we lost it. So it prescribes a value of negative one. Well, this is where the here and now molecules also kind of step into play. Well, if we lose something, that means it could affect our present ability to survive. So we also are going to add a negative one. So now gain has a score of plus one, but losing has a score of negative two. So the value of it, right, the objective value of losing is greater than the pleasure of gaining. And we can see this, right? So if I were to threaten you with terror attacks, virus, um, actually even just posting hand sanitizer all over the place, you would have an increase in your H&N uh, activation as well as your amygdala activation. And this would make you more conservative. Think, after 9-11, uh, we became much more conservative as a country. After 2008 financial crisis, we became much more conservative as a country. Uh, currently, people are becoming much more conservative, uh, financially at least, because we're in a financial crisis. Inflation is through the roof. Everything is expensive as all hell. And we are coming out of a pandemic. So basically, we are, uh, just in terms of talk, I can make you more conservative. Also, I can drug you. 
<laughs> so uh, we can use psychotic uh, mental health drugs, SSRI, serotonin, uh, pro-serotonin drugs. If we were to give you higher serotonin, it's going to make you more conservative, right? And because serotonin is a here and now molecule, we're going to downregulate those that dopamine, which is going to make you neurochemically a more conservative person because you're more concerned with the present moment. And now how does serotonin make us more conservative, right? Because if we're just happier, that I think a lot of people tend to think about that with the Liberal Party or the Democratic Party. But serotonin actually makes you more conservative. And they did this in a vote like they uh, did studies on this where they gave people more uh, serotonin and they also like threats of loss. And then when they voted, right, if they were to do a vote, they tended to vote generally more conservatively after the uh, trials had been taken out versus prior to. And what's interesting is serotonin actually makes us more pro-social and it increases our harm aversion. So if you guys remember last episode, we talked about how likely are you to be able to push a single pedestrian onto the tracks in order to save five people versus if you did not push that person onto the tracks, those five people would die. Well, the closer you are to the situation, the less likely you're going to be able to push that one innocent person onto the tracks in order to save those five lives, even though ethically and generally morally, that would be seen as the right thing. Sacrifice one life to save five. However, given we are so close to the situation, we are very present. As soon as we touch that person, we cannot help but be in the present moment. Right, so we have a high degree of H and M molecules, which means our dopamine is going to be low. So it's going to be hard for us to maximize future resources, which means we're not going to kill that one person and say five, we're going to let those five people die. Now, this increases with serotonin, which is an H and N molecule. So you can make sense that not being able to kill that one person is actually a conservative action. And the further away from the situation we go, the easier it is to be able to sacrifice that one person and save five. But that is because in order to do that, the further away we go, the higher our dopamine levels get. And the lower our H&L level, H&N levels get. Also, I can make you more liberal if I choose. Without your knowledge. But I'm going to be a bad magician and tell you how I'm going to do it in just a second. Now, before I do that, I want you to imagine that you had all of the money, perfect health, and you could never get injured again, right? I want you to imagine your life with this, and I want you to ask yourself in that imaginary state, how would your life be different, and how would it be better if you had those three things? All the money you could ever need, you had perfect and impeccable health, and you knew that no matter what, you could never get injured again. Now, if we were to have you take a piece of paper and we we're going to have you like take a vote or, you know, do some trait characteristic assessment, you would actually assess and test out more liberal now than before this podcast began. Why is that? Well, I started by telling you to imagine and imagination is fake. 
right? Imagination is not real yet. It is in the future. It is in uh, the extra personal space. And as we just talked about in the last chapter, creativity, that means we have to have dopamine, right? We have to secrete a higher level of dopamine in order for the future to be thought of and imagined in our mind. Now, what did we also learn just a couple minutes ago? Liberals tend to be more dopaminergic than conservatives. So simply by the act of imagining, you're able to make somebody behave in a more liberal sense or in alignment with generally more liberal characteristics. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Now, just just by imagining you can be you can be make somebody more liberal right so now imagine the power of this with voting season right you can if you're to have like a bunch of ads imagine this imagine that imagine a world with so and so in power imagine the good that he would bring right and then you tend to have more people vote more liberal also, on the converse side, if you were to have a conservative say, so-and-so is going to make you lose this, so-and-so is going to make you lose that, the world's going to be harder here, and blah, 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 and you know, and then they gave you a bunch of food that increased your serotonin, <clears throat> a bunch of carbs and processed food, uh, excuse me, you're actually going to generally vote in a more conservative manner, right, on average. Now, what's crazy is, while there seems to be all these freaking differences, let's be real here for just a second. If we looked at the average person most conserv- who's conservative, most of them really honestly just want to be left alone and have the freedom to make their own decisions. And if we looked at most liberals, most of them would just really want to be, want all people to be happier, healthier, and safer as a whole. Now, while most of us Uh, would think and would argue very strongly that liberals and conservatives are inherently different, could never mix, and if you're conservative, you can never work with a liberal. If you're liberal, how dare you even think of working with that KKK member? Let's be honest here, guys. Is that really what we see when we go and we talk to people? Is this stark difference that not only this, this book, this neurochemistry, description but also the media is this stark difference between conservatives and liberals is it really what's going on in the real world and i'm not going to tell you the answer to that i know that the answer is but I, I have a challenge for you guys go out and truly be open-minded and have a conversation with somebody who has the opposite political beliefs as you ask them in a nice way right don't be an asshole Ask them about politics, religion. Ask them about immigration and what they think. And genuinely try to understand their viewpoints and hear them out. Ask for understanding and ask for further explanation when you don't understand their topic or their comment. And try and prescribe or provide your own added understanding of your own side of things when they don't seem to understand it. And see how if you guys are really different or if you're actually a lot more similar than what you thought. And besides, conversation is the first step towards progress. So, which speaking of progress, that happens to be the next chapter.
And it all starts off with this grandiose story of the old, old humans leaving Africa. And it started about 200,000 years ago. And it, it really kind of continued mostly for about the next 100,000 years. But what's crazy is that while dopamine helped, we almost didn't make it. And how do we know this? Well, what's crazy, I think an incredible fact, is that every single human on this earth, no matter whether you're tall, short, male, female, trans, gay, straight, purple, brown, green, orange, white, red, uh, purple, whatever the hell you are, we are 99.99% identical. If we were to take our every single person's genome and we were to string it out and we were to look at it nucleotide pair by nucleotide pair, we would see 999 out of every thousand exactly the same if we were to average it out. So that means we are only 0.01% different from the person sitting next to us. 0.1% different. Yeah. We're only 0.1% different. We only have one base pair out of every thousand base pairs different than every single human on this planet. And we know this because we have, that's an incredibly small amount of genetic variation. And in fact, it is the smallest amount of genetic variation among any other primate species. Right, so if we were to look at every single other primate species, there is more genetic variation amongst each of those species, the individuals in those species, than there is amongst humans. And in fact, with increasing amounts of, you know, cross uh, mating, right, interracial marriage, um, immigration, we are actually having an increasingly less amount of genetic differences because just all the cross mingling of genes people from different cultures different areas of the world uh, were crisscrossing and we're getting more and more integrated in fact likely they say that there's a point where almost all humans are going to look quite similar to each other and i think we're reaching that point ever so quickly um, but what's cool is while these genes we have uh genes that re- produce dopamine and we have alleles of them that we can actually see trends with and we talked about one of them the 7r gene which is a variation of the d4 gene and these alleles that where people produced more dopamine actually helped us emigrate further out of africa so what's really cool is that cultures that went the furthest from uh our native plains of africa actually have the highest in uh, rates of these R7R genes. And what's cool is that having that allele actually didn't prompt us to leave, but what they think is that it actually is really just what helped us to survive when we left. Because people with these alleles tend to be more novelty-seeking, tend to do better in new environments and adapt better to change. However, it also makes them less uh, apt at social interaction and teamwork because they tend to be lo- lower in the H and N molecules. So while they helped us survive here, you know, helped us survive and migrate, they 
weren't necessarily so great at teamwork and building deep social bonds. And then we can also look at this cool because or today because we know that uh, countries with the highest level of immigrants in the world also have the highest rates and the highest prevalence of this 7R allele. And the U.S. happens to be the top of that. And we also happen to see an increase of this, not only in immigrants, but also in entrepreneurs and innovators. We look at some of the greatest companies that have been built are actually from immigrants. We look at Google, Intel, PayPal, and even Snapchat. All of these companies were started by immigrants who did not originate here, but have come here and likely more immigrants, places with more immigrants, have a higher likelihood of having the prevalence of this 7R gene. Now, we must say, as we talked about earlier, that nurture, right, society does play a role in this. One of the greatest liberties in America is that we are, we have an inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness, right, which is dopamine trying to pursue harmony between it and the H&L molecules, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. So, What's crazy is I think that um, you know we talk about dopamine orchestrating all of these different areas of our life, and a lot of us might get caught up, and I know I was, that dopamine might really be who we are. I was reading this book, and it would talk about this dopaminergic thing, this dopaminergic trait, and I was like, yeah, man, I was like, that's me. But we've also talked about all these other molecules. And while dopamine is only one in every two million cells in our brain, it seems to control a disproportionate amount of functions. Now, of all those other cells, most of them do things that are below our conscious understanding, our conscious ability to generally interpret and interfere with think of like breathing and our heart rate our digestion keeping our hormones balanced right we don't consciously think about this and if we did we honestly i don't think we'd be able to do it because we're far too complex of an organism to consciously be able to coordinate all of these different things but you know we've spent most of the better half of two episodes talking about dopamine and you know this one in two million cells and it's quite crazy and so we kind of get lost that and maybe we get this idea that okay well i am dopamine right dopamine is me because it carries out so many of my conscious decisions i think that we kind of get lost and we forget that most of who we are actually originates in our subconscious, right? And all of that is orchestrated out by the H&N molecules and the 1,999,999 out of every 2 million cells that don't secrete dopamine. You know, if you look at your friend, you don't necessarily look at them for what they want more of. You look at them for and you recognize them for how they make you feel, right? How do they laugh and have humor? How do they build relationships? 
How do they think about the world? Even it might go all the way down to how do they move in their own unique way? And I think what's really cool is that while everything conscious seems to be run by dopamine, we can learn to reel it in and become more present in the moment and actually achieve a sense of harmony, you know, with this desire for more as well as this ability to enjoy the now. So that's kind of where we're going to wrap up today, guys, which is this chapter of harmony. And it's it's kind of like this thought of too much of a good thing is bad. And I believe that's from the Karate Kid. Um, but, you know, and it, the chapter starts with there's a guy who is worried about everything in the future. He can't stop worrying about it. And he gets, you know, really, really anxious and depressed and in fact, he actually becomes emotionally incredibly fragile to the point where he makes a joke. Uh, I don't know if it's a joke or a comment, but he says, you know, other people call AAA when they have the a flat tire. I call the suicide hotline. And so he goes to a psychiatrist and they provide him a, a antidepressants. And over about like the next month, he uh, goes in and he starts to have his mood and he feels really, really good. And he's like, Doc. You know, I, I kind of got this idea. It's like, I feel so good right now. What would happen? Like, would I feel even better if we upped my dose? You know, like, I feel way better now. I don't have like crazy emotions. I feel kind of like myself. But would I feel even better if we upped my dose of my meds? Well, so they do. The doctor's like, sure. Yeah, like, I think that'd be a good idea. Uh, let's try it. So he comes back about a month later and he says, Doc. I feel so freaking amazing. I actually have no reason to get up out of bed. I hang out in bed all day. I sleep. I hang out. I watch TV. Because I feel so good that there's nothing to do. Right? Like, I feel great. There's nothing that could add to this feeling. And, well, that's not a good thing. He kind of, the doctor kind of realizes that he went maybe a little overboard so they bring his dose back down and he's back down to this happy balance. Now, thankfully, most of us don't need medication to do that. We have several other modalities that we can bring and restore harmony in our body, right? So we can have this balance, this appropriate balance between the dopaminergic urge for more and this ability to enjoy the here and now. And one of those, which I actually love, it's the first one they list, is the concept of mastery. And they define mastery as the ability to extract the maximum reward out of a given circumstance. And when we do this and we achieve mastery, this is actually dopamine achieving dopamine's goal, right? Dopamine is here to maximize the resources and the given situation. And when we do this, dopamine will gladly hand over the stage to the H9 molecules and allow us to enjoy the moment, allow us to enjoy the win, the accomplishment, and just be present in the moment. And what's cool is it also gives us an internal locus of control, which basically means that we are in charge of our destiny. We, When we have mastery or we are on our way to mastery, it makes us more likely to think that we have a greater degree of influence on how our life ends up. 
And, you know, it kind of asks the question of, would you rather be the driver or a passenger during a blizzard or a hailstorm? And I think most of us would probably rather be the driver because we have that internal locus of control. We think that we can uh, get the better result versus an external locus of control is like, oh, yeah, life's kind of just like on the whim and I don't really have much control over it. Um, if good things happen, it's just by chance. It's not by what I do. But I think it was kind of cool um, to listen to that. And then the next one, which I also really like, is being present. Man, like just be present in the moment, especially like when we're doing menial tasks. I think oftentimes most of us don't think about what we're doing or the tasks that we're doing. And But if we take notice of it, we might notice something new, which is awesome because now dopamine is getting fired because of reward prediction error, right? It thought it was there, but it was wrong. And so dopamine's like, whoa, what's this new thing? What do I, what am I missing? What do I, how do I maximize the environment better? How can I utilize this new undiscovered resource to my advantage more? And it's cool because it's, it's really combining, uh, dopamine and the H&M molecules and they're working together. You know, we're being present, so we're in the moment, but also dopamine is getting this crazy hit because we discovered something new. You know, and it gets excited. And then the last one, one of the more kind of talks about is look at nature. You know, and this is, they did a study of a bunch of people and they had to press a button on every single number they saw except for the number three. And they had to do it 225 times. And what they were looking for was the degree of accuracy that people had. And so they did this as a control, and each group was their own control. And then they had them take a break and spend a couple minutes on the roof, and either they were looking at a concrete roof or they were looking at a roof with some greenery and some grass and some shrubbery. And they took them back, and they had them do it again, and they compared the scores. What was really cool was that those people that looked at nature and the green and the grass and the shrubs and the flowers, they actually performed better than those that looked at the concrete building. And what's cool is we're actually triggering um, a dopamine release again by the here and now. And the thought is this nature is novel, it's complex, it's intricate, that, and it triggers novelty. Right, so that triggers dopamine, and that allows us to focus better, have better attention, zero in on our target, and it allowed the participants of the study to have a higher degree of accuracy. The next one was to kind of goes along with being present, but it was to focus on only one task at a time, and this was shown to cut errors in half uh, compared to when people were multitasking. It was shown to increase ability to focus and to concentrate on a task and actually increase people's overall level of happiness. There was an app uh, that asked a bunch of people randomly throughout the day for many days in a row. It's asked them two questions. One, how are you feeling right now? And two, are you thinking about the task currently or are you thinking about something other than the task? And first off, what they found was that basically every single task that people ever do produced the exact same amount of mind wandering. So there was no task really uh, that produced 
a crazy amount more of focus, except for sex. Sex was incredibly good at keep, keeping people's attention on the task at hand, which makes a lot of sense. But every other task was doing it. And they also found that people who were had their mind wandering or thinking about something other than the task also reported being less happy than those who were focused on the present task. And I think that's that's really cool. And then the last one that the book provides as a way to find better harmony is be creative, right? Be creative. We spent the whole first part of the podcast talking about creativity and how it's associated with increases level of dopamine, but also you get this great sense of pride and accomplishment of you being able to say, I made this. And what I think was was really cool is they talked, they did a survey of the happiest employees, right? The happiest industry. And they found was that the happiest employees were actually construction workers. And there was three main things that they attributed to their degree of happiness. First off was they worked with great people, which was a very H&N focused uh, characteristic. Second was they're excited about their projects, uh, which is a very dopaminergic one, right? And then three, they had a, a high amount of camaraderie. So they had very deep bonds and connections and relationships with the people that they worked with and they enjoyed that, which is an H and one. Now, their one caveat and one uh, thing that we need to note with this study and this survey was that during the time it was taken, the construction injury, uh, industry was having a really big boom, which meant uh, higher pay raises, which is also a dopaminergic reason. And I think what's cool is that we see that this industry, and construction workers specifically, is very balanced out in their use of dopamine and the H&N molecules. So how do we find harmony and happiness? Just like the construction workers we do. We want to find great people to live and work with. We want to find work that we can be excited about and create, right? We want to have strong relationships with people. And we also want to be present in the moment, I think, doing those same things. So guys, that's that's kind of how we do it. Um, yeah, that's that's the book. It was a ridiculous amount of information. I had to leave out so much of the book and I've done now almost three and a half hours worth of content on this book and I don't even think I did a scratch of justice. That's my dopamine talking, right? I don't even think I, I scratched half of the surface with this book. So guys, I really implore you guys to read it uh, and go out and get it. It is The Molecule of More by Daniel Z. Lieberman and Michael E. Long. It is a great book. It's just over 300 pages, so it's not a crazy long read, um, but it is a really good one. Now, before you guys go, I want to encourage you guys' dopaminergic ability and use. So I want to give you guys a couple tips that I got from the book and also I've learned from other sources on how to leverage dopamine to achieve more and to actually be a bit more in control of it. And so I have just a couple strategies for you guys. 
The first one is delay gratification. Okay, we heard about in the chapter of love that passion denied is passion sustained, and passion is is very much related with dopamine. So we want to delay gratification because remember, as soon as we get it, as soon as we get that prize, boom, dopamine crashes. Okay. The second one is we always want to have a little itch for more, right? So we want to be not a hundred percent satisfied with it, so that we want to work <clears throat> work more and get that. Uh, number three is I would recommend starting small and starting early. Start with a simple task in the morning. My first task every single day is making my bed. I make it look nice, uh, and it, I get a win through the day, and it propels me forward to make want to make more wins. Another one is to change something in your routine, right? So I think oftentimes we get stuck in the same routine, and it kind of gets boring. The same old, same old. We're lacking that uh, prediction, reward, error, right? That dopamine so loves. So change your routine something about it maybe you change your workout from the morning to the evening or from the evening to the morning you know maybe you change up how you make your coffee or what you do uh i would also recommend you to be present right and that's kind of the same thing we're going to get a greater reward prediction error also hopefully we'll feel a little bit better because we're present and we're not thinking we're not wandering uh and then lastly guys Start, and I think this one is the most important and going to be the most powerful for you, but start attaching meaning of progress to the process and to the tasks. So if we can begin to attach that the tasks that we have to do to accomplish the goal is actually how we're moving forward and we can begin to consciously associate those small or seemingly unimportant tasks with really moving us forward and getting us closer to that goal right to maximizing our environment we're going to get a hit from doing the work towards the goal which is going to make it easier to do the goal easier to work towards the goal and actually hopefully more enjoyable to do so which if we can fall in love with the process then we're going to start reaching goals left and right left and right left and right it's going to be really cool. Now, the last thing I want to leave you guys with as we do every single week here at the Earn Your Good Day podcast is to give you guys a piece of value in terms of a recipe that you can use, right? Because one of the things that we do have the most control over and that can add or degrade from our lives in a massive way is what we put in our face hole. It's what we put in our mouth, Okay. So what we're going to do today is we're going to be talking about a panini recipe. All right, guys, sandwiches are phenomenal. Hot and toasted sandwiches are even better. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take your slice of bread. I would suggest taking um, a little bit nicer sliced bread, or if you have it, like a brioche bun. Uh, It's going to be just a little bit better. And we're going to slice it in half. Right, we don't want to rip it in half. We're going to slice it in half so we can stack everything. And we're going to do uh, Dijon mustard on one side. And we're going to do uh, real mayonnaise on the other side. And then the side with the Dijon mustard, we're going to do a slice of uh, Munster cheese. And we're going to top that with spinach. 
and some red onions, all right? And then we're going to put some turkey on there and some roast beef. Yes, we're going to do two meats today. And then we're going to do <clears throat> uh, tomatoes, lettuce, and a little bit of ranch on the top. And then we're going to put the side with the mayo on there. We're going to put it down. We're going to squish it down, okay? We want to press everything together. And we're going to go in and we're going to put that son bitch in the panini press. If you don't have a panini press, you're going to cook it basically like a grilled cheese, man. All right. So you want to do some, lots of butter in the pan, a hot pan to start off with. And then we're going to turn it down to like that medium heat because we don't want to burn. We actually want to let this sandwich sit, okay? So heat your pan up, but then turn it to low medium. Yes, not just medium, but low medium, all right? And we want to use plenty of butter. And we're going to set it on there. We're going to let the sandwich sit. If you have a, a sandwich press or a way to press it down, that's even better. And then we're going to do about two minutes on the side till that bread is perfectly toasted. Flip that bad boy over. We're going to do the same thing, all right? And you're going to cut the fancy schmancy way, which is diagonal, not the in the middle way. And you're going to serve it. You're going to make it look real pretty. And guys, you're going to have yourself one freaking delicious sandwich. So, guys, that is the show. Thank you so much for sticking around these last two weeks. There's been a ridiculous amount of information given to you. Uh, I would definitely listen to these episodes more than once so you can get everything out of it. And I would also highly, highly, highly recommend picking up this book, The Molecule of More, and reading it for yourself because there's so much that I had to leave out of here. And it's going to give you guys such a clear understanding of how to use dopamine, of how dopamine is using you, and how you can make your life better with it. So guys, if you got any value out of the show, if you stuck all the way to the end, thank you again. But if the show gave you any value, it made you change your mind, it made you think of something different, it made you laugh, uh, it, useful in any sort of way, guys, I want you to use this information as soon as you end this podcast, as soon as you hang up because that's going to help you learn it the best it's going to help you implement it into your life in the most secure way and you're actually going to get the most bang out of your buck for the value secondly guys if you think you know somebody who would benefit from this information please 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 help spread the word guys share it with them have a conversation with them post on social media you know, we want to grow this community because the more go-getters and the more badass people we got earning a good day, the better this world is going to get. And frankly, guys, this topic, especially today's episode, even more so than last week's, talking about harmony and how to balance dopamine with enjoying the present moment is something I think we really need in society today. And you guys spreading this word out can help have that impact on society. So with that, guys, go out, spread the word, use this stuff right now. But most importantly, more than anything else, go out and earn a good day.